Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. But first, a Sam Cooper exclusive. Looking back, oh, about six years ago, we're finding out the Prime Minister knew about Chinese interference in our political system. There is a memo, and we're finding out more six years later. And where do we stand? Well, with more on that, we go to Sam Cooper, who is a national, well, the National Online Investigative Journalist for Global News and the author of Willful Blindness. Sam, good to have you with us. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Bruce. You know, uh, we've been talking about the possibility of this for years, but more information keeps on coming to light, and it's not that good, is it? Uh, It's concerning, I believe, for Canadians, Uh, Bruce. This is part of my ongoing investigation into uh, the government, the federal government's response to uh, Canadian intelligence uh, uh, investigations, fact-finding, and briefing and documentation for senior liberal government officials that point to what I have reported, uh, citing sources and documents, is a Chinese election interference effort in 2019 that targeted at least 11 federal candidates in the Toronto area. The allegations, uh, as your listeners may know already, are of covert funding operations that use community groups to funnel funds secretly to China's favored candidates. And Bruce, I'll tell you, as you suspect, uh, this is, of course, not just Toronto. Uh, I'm uh, of course, looking across Canada, but you can uh, you can take this to the bank. There are, of course, targeted candidates at all levels of government in Vancouver. And my latest reporting on this June 2017 memo indicates this. This is a quote. Uh, Canadian intelligence prepared a draft for the prime minister's office saying there's well-documented evidence. All levels of government have been infiltrated and targeted by China and uh Foreign-influenced espionage efforts against Canadian officials is well-documented evidence. Where do we go with this information? Where should we be going? Well, I've already reported a a few times since last November, we should be going uh, in the direction that the governments in Australia and the United Kingdom, to pick two of our closest allies as examples, uh, they have uh, instituted in the past let's say since about 2018 foreign agent registries and new uh new modern criminal laws which focus on foreign interference which is a much different uh, threat than the old school espionage and so bruce this is not just my uh, recommendation as a journalist x slash expert that canada needs these laws to this comes from a, a bipartisan panel of uh of uh, parliamentarians chosen by the Trudeau government to have access to an intelligence, uh, sensitive intelligence, and report back on uh, foreign interference activities. They have recommended in 2019 that Canada follow Australia's example for the exact same deep threats uh, to the democracy that Australia is seeing 
the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and other countries from China. The same thing is happening across Canada. You know, Sam, uh, before we get to the how, we should also uh, revisit the why. And when we hear stories about this, we've got to look at uh, what China's interest might be. So when they take a look at the Chinese government and the Communist Party of China, when it takes a look at uh, Canada, what would be the gain from interfering in uh, in a political election? What is it? Uh, is it an exercise to see that they can, or is it more about uh, wanting something as a result of uh, legislation? Well, you nailed it with your last sentence. There, it's a very concrete objective. At a high level, the Chinese Communist Party wants to protect its regime, its power, and it wants to protect its policies. So, the uh, again, I'm not uh, extrapolating. This comes from documents I've reviewed from CSIS, the Privy Council Office, other arms of Canadian intelligence. They say uh, China's very sophisticated efforts use uh, so-called proxies, community leaders, to get close to uh, targeted Canadian politicians they, China, the Communist Party intelligence operatives want their Canadian candidates on Parliament Hill so that they, that the candidates can be influenced to, uh, you know, support uh, policy that would be favorable to Xi Jinping. So two examples, uh, the, the genocide in Xinjiang, China does not want Canadian parliamentarians to be speaking out about that. And of course, issues, uh, uh, that, that uh, your listeners remember, such as the, the Mun Wanzhou case that Huawei executive uh, arrest, uh, detained in a mansion in Vancouver. China did not want her extradited to the United States. They wanted Canadian politicians to be advocating for her uh, release or a so-called prisoner swap for the two Michaels. And what do you know? We can see in open source records, a lot of uh, influential Canadians were advocating for that second course of action. So if I'm hearing you right, Sam, it's uh, two parts here. It's back off on some of the comments and pushing when it comes to uh, Chinese policy that we, as Canadians, might not like. And the second part of it is, of course, um, taking a different course of action when it comes to uh, things like uh, Hmong and the case of what happened there. Um, How is this happening uh, you know, how, how do they influence? What is the mechanism and why is it still continuing? Well, the how, uh, that, that's the, the, a brilliant question. And I've reported on it repeatedly now since November. Documents say that China, of course, uh, as, as other countries, they would have diplomats that uh, could meet overtly with Canadian politicians, but they don't want to meet overtly. They want to do clandestine influence activity, which can include pressure, leverage, bribery, uh, political uh, support, funding support for Canadian candidates. How do they do that secretly? They use, I have reported, community groups. These would be leaders uh, in business and uh, cultural uh, groups in Canada that very unfortunately, uh, many of them would have started as grassroots uh, supportive Chinese Canadian uh, community groups. However, they've been taken over, again, I know this from documentation, by Chinese consulate officials in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary. And so these officials can direct community leaders to be middlemen, middlewomen, intermediaries, meet with Canadian politicians, and uh, under the cover of, uh, you know, what would look like friendly meetings, actually be recruiting 
That's a direct quote, Bruce, recruiting Canadian targets. That's how it works. And the covert funding uh, I've reported based on documentation goes through these intermediaries to give the Chinese government secrecy and insulation. Well, some of these groups, uh, we all know them. We don't have to name them. Not here, not now. But uh, they're not really hiding the fact when they have fundraising dinners or these type of things for uh, federal politicians, are they? They're not at all. There have been controversies where uh, people that, you know, Bruce, I can report and we have reported are now uh, the, ta- the target of Canadian national security investigations with re- uh, regards to these so-called Chinese police station in Vancouver or in the, on the Richmond border. These very same people have been pictured uh, rubbing elbows with our prime minister at so-called cash for access dinners. You know, that activity has got a little bit of a spotlight on it. So, uh, you know, in my uh, expert assessment, there are now more discreet ways of funneling cash into Canadian political parties. But you're right. This activity, uh, these meetings uh, between Canadian politicians and community leaders are very wide out in the open. Sam, keep up the good work. There's so much more that we could get into, and I hope we uh We'll have an opportunity to do that because this is a story that's just not going away. Uh, Thanks for all your good work and investigative chops on this. Thank you, Bruce. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith this morning. We've been talking about Chinese interference in the Canadian political system. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's nothing new. No, it isn't. Uh, You know, it's February 10th, 2023. We've been talking about this for years. And as Sam Cooper points out, more information is coming to light about uh, how much we knew and when. Uh, A memo going back to the prime minister way back to, well, six years ago. In 2017, it just keeps on going. But, uh, you know, what What are we saying about it as politicians at any level? Well, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West has been pushing for a little bit more scrutiny on this. And uh, we've talked about this before. Brad, uh, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, are you surprised, Brad? Well, <laughs> I don't know if much surprises me anymore, Bruce, when it comes to this. Um Look, uh, this latest revelation that uh, there was a very direct and, in fact, repeated warnings to the highest levels of our federal government seven years ago uh, should outrage all Canadians. Um, There has been not an iota of action taken on this. And I think we need to ask ourselves, are we a serious country or not? Because if we're a serious country... We would not allow a foreign government, any foreign government, by the way, but particularly one that's as hostile to Canadian interests as the government of China is, to take the actions uh, that have been described by our intelligence services. They have worked to assist candidates for elected office. We know that they have funneled money to candidates for office. We know that they've engaged in espionage of our elected officials. Uh, What more is it going to take to wake someone up in Ottawa and say, enough, we're a serious country and we're going to act like it. And there's some things that they could do, some of which, by the way, very low-hanging fruit. How about a, a foreign agent's registry like they have all over the world, in the United States, in the U.K.? in Australia, 
And we can't even seem to get that. I mean, it's pathetic. You know, Mayor Brad West, um, I'm just spitballing here, but I, I wonder if it comes down to how desperate political parties are for money right now. If uh, others just aren't donating enough and, you know, that's low-hanging fruit, it's uh, easy cash. And why not tap into a community and a community that uh, may or may not have uh, ties, but who cares? It's money. Do you think that's at play? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. You, you, your mind does wander, and you wonder, you know, how the hell are people just turning a blind eye to this? Because what is at stake, in my opinion, is pretty fundamental to our democracy. Are our elected officials uh, given the authority that they're given to represent our citizens, our people? Or is that just a facade and they're there to do the bidding of a foreign government? I mean, I don't want to be exaggerated and be over the top, but look, that's what it comes down to. If you allow a foreign government to interfere to the degree of which the government of China has with no repercussions, all it does is embolden them and invite more and more manipulation and interference in our country's affairs. And I can tell you something, Bruce, if the shoe were on the other foot, How quickly do you think that this would last in China if the government of Canada was trying to fund candidates for office and support candidates for office in China or was trying to engage in uh, manipulation of that country's uh, system of government? It would not last a nanosecond. And yet, in our country, it has been allowed to go on for years. You know, there may be somebody, let's take somebody in Port Coquitlam, for example, who is listening to this and says, yeah, okay, I hear what uh, you're saying, Brad West. You're a great guy, great mayor. But um, how does it affect me? How does it affect the, uh, you know, my neighborhood when we have this interference? What impact is there? Why should I care? Well, look, it, it, it does impact local government because, remember, it wasn't that long ago that the Union of BC Municipalities, which is an organization that's supposed to represent all the mayors and city councillors and communities across the province, was taking money in the form of financial sponsorship from the government of China. And that allowed those government officials to have access to mayors and councillors right across this province. They rolled out the red carpet, they did, you know, the the free dinners and the rubbing shoulders. And the question I have is, why, why do people think they would do that out of the goodness of their heart? No, of course not. The government of China has an agenda, and we see that very active in our country. They have been very deliberate about their uh, acquisition of Canadian resources. Look uh, throughout our country at... Uh, many of the really key industries, and you see the government of China and their subsidiaries through state-owned companies have been acquiring them. Um, this is serious stuff. And yeah, it, maybe it's not going to impact right now you getting your garbage picked up or using a, a park in our community. And by the way, we do a really good job of that as well. So first things first. But this is about the future of our country. This is about what type of communities our children are going to grow up in. Uh, And this is about democracy. This is about the citizens of this country being in control of our own destiny and not having this level of foreign interference. Thank you very much. Uh, Future of our country, 
children and what they're going to grow up in, democracy, all very good points. Thanks for following this so closely and being a guest this morning. Appreciate it, Bruce. This is Bruce Clackett in for Mike Smith today. Well, no doubt about it, uh, we continue to hear stories about BC's healthcare system and challenges right through it. And BC is not alone, of course. Uh, this is happening in, you know, provinces right across the country. Well, the doctors of BC will be weighing in on whether the federal funding announced this week is going to be enough to fix healthcare systems across the country and right here in our province. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Should note, though, speaking of BC announcements and uh, funding, in the last few minutes, a big announcement from the provincial government, and no accident on this, the announcement was made at a newser in Surrey in the last half hour. $1 billion for a growth communities fund. What's that money going for? Well, support for infrastructure in the faster-growing communities, places like Surrey and Surrey. Mayor Brenda Locke was on hand. It being held in Surrey had to be there, of course, pointing out the fast growth of pace in her community and the need for things, facilities for children, not the least of which is, of course, schools. More reaction and details on that $1 billion growth communities fund throughout the day. But first, let's talk about the B.C. doctors and their response. When the federal government funding has come in this week, we know that that funding amounts to, well, $196 billion over the next decade. Only $46 billion of that is actually new money. So where do we stand? Well, Dr. Joshua Gregan is with the doctors of B.C., the president. Thank you very much, doctor, for joining us. Uh, Is the money enough? Uh, Thanks, Bruce, for having me. I'll reflect that even in my own household, you could always have more money. But we believe that $46 billion over 10 years is a good place to start to try and address some of the issues that we know are prevalent across the country and specifically in British Columbia. Okay, so were you involved in consultation, you and uh, your equivalents right across the country? So... We, as doctors at BC, weren't involved directly with the federal government. We have been working with the provincial government and the Ministry of Health, advocating very strongly for the issues that we see. And then ultimately, the premier gets to speak with the federal government and Justin himself to talk about what the money could go towards. Realistically, some of the funds, and specifically the first $2 billion, are unrestricted funds, which we believe strongly will continue to go with the priorities that we've been working alongside the government now for several years and explicitly the last six months. What are we going to see? And I'm I'm going to talk about this from top level down because we hear so many stories about so many uh, crises in the healthcare system. It's not just one crisis. What are we going to see from this new money, the $46 billion right away in terms of not just spending, but uh, in terms of improvements? Or what do you hope to see? Yeah, that's always a difficult question, right? The money is just money, right? It doesn't actually turn into people or resources until you plan it as such. And so we have been working very closely now the last little while around primary care and people's access to family physicians because that's so important. I hope to see further investment in, again, virtual care, 
team-based care, which means people across the province of British Columbia have care no matter where they are, no matter what their circumstances. And it may be best appropriate to see a physician, but leaning into nurses and nurse practitioners, potentially physician assistants, as well as pharmacists and the whole team to really create the services that we need. We know, as you said, Bruce, there are multiple crises, mental health, substance use, opioid crises, access to specialty services, access to specialists. And so that money will very quickly disappear here as we try and do everything and it's critically important that we reflect the needs of British Columbians and we work alongside the government to make sure that money goes to the right places. Well, it's not cheap when you start talking about fixes for any of these things. We know that, but it's also required. Um, we're just talking about uh, growth with the announcement in Surrey this morning. Uh, but when I think of an area like uh, Surrey and Langley, where if I have a young child and that child gets sick on the weekend, and uh, I know that I want to get a prescription or get that child in to, uh, to see a doctor, good luck. It's not going to happen, period. And for sure, we've seen that across the province. Some areas that have grown very quickly. You mentioned Surrey, Langley, the South Island, Victoria, also those places. And yet there's a whole bunch of rural places across this province that have also limited access. And so we know that in order for that child to be seen, we need people. So we need physicians and nurses to be available. They need to be in places like office, you know, emergency rooms, urgent care centers to how that's going to happen. And so we've really leaned into the human and health resources, which is really around training people, bringing people, recruiting people to ensure that when that child is sick in Langley or Nelson or Massett any day or any week that you have the opportunity to get your child looked after. What are we looking at for a timeline here? Training, recruitment, um, those type of things you mentioned. uh, I mean, that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, Even after the money comes, even after there's a plan, uh, how long are we talking before we can see solutions? Well, I think this new plan that started February 1st for the Longitudinal Family Practice or Payment Model for Family Physicians is starting to have a small impact already. We've heard stories of physicians now joining practices and taking on patients where they weren't otherwise. Physicians really feeling like they can now provide some of the, the temporary care or some of the care temporarily until some of those new things occur. You know, other things like having internationally trained physicians and nurses start to be a part of the fabric of our medical society is started and will continue. And then looking at things like training new physicians. And so my point to UBC's expansions of medical school spots and residency spots, as well as SSU, the new medical school coming on board in the next few years. Some of those are short-term, Bruce. Some of those are medium-term. Some of those are long-term. But what we're really saying is there is absolute commitment and alignment to say we need to make these things better for the sake of British Columbians. And we, with federal funding, provincial collaboration, and the expertise and knowledge of our physicians and healthcare professionals are going to make it happen over the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Now, all those are good words and good aspirations, and I commend you for that. But let's talk about uh, reality here. And if you are a professional who is highly trained, got good marks in school, or came over from another country with a lot of expertise, um, what's going to get you into a community like McBride or, uh, or even Armstrong or some other smaller community in the province? You'll want to stay around the big cities, right? 
Well, that's always this challenge is that we have put together programs over the years where it has return of service. So if you are from another country and you've trained overseas and you're coming to your practice, you need to be in smaller places for a period of time. That only really works temporarily. And so really trying to inspire people to be in community, to in, in be in some of those more isolated places. And I think there's been some really good success stories in something we call the practice ready assessment program, you know, in some of the return of services where people connect into places like Hazleton or Massett or Armstrong, as you said. And so it's really about changing the culture to make sure that the community, the medical community and the people support these new physicians or nurses or pharmacists and ensuring that they feel, you know, grateful and opportunistic for the chance to provide the service in their level of expertise. Yeah, I would imagine it's putting roots down in a community. So maybe even uh, joining some of the community groups or having uh, children of some of these professionals uh, start to get super involved. Maybe that's a solution because we're still hearing of these shortages when it comes to some of the smaller communities. ER is closed down because there isn't an ER doctor available on shift for that time. Um, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and that's some of the challenge. Like, if there are not adequate human resources in a particular community, then either physicians need to come in and work. And so, Bruce, I have the privilege next weekend to go working rural ER in Port Hardy because I, as a generalist family physician, get to do ER plus office space. And so, that's a privilege I have. But I'm not there day to day, week to week, month to month. And so, really about inspiring physicians, nurses, pharmacists, x-ray techs, lab techs to feel like they have a place and a home in that community. As I've given talks to new physicians to the country over the years, I've encouraged them to, if you're going to go to Port Hardy, learn to fish. If you're going to go to Prince George, learn to snowmobile. Try and embed yourself in the curling club, the bridge club, all those things that are so important, which may be foreign to foreign people, but yet so important to are able to connect and have them feel inspired and stick around communities for the benefit of their families, themselves, and ultimately the community that they serve. Absolutely. It is a beautiful province right across the province and uh, very diverse in terms of topography, scenery, communities. Uh, all the best to you as you go to Port Hardy and uh, and deal with what we know has been a challenge in that community. Uh, Dr. Joshua Gregan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. And happy Friday. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Thinking of selling a car yourself? Have you done it in the last little bit? Well, things are a-changing. The NDP government has brought in a new system for charging sales tax on privately sold cars. Well, here's NDP MLA Brenda Bailey explaining how it's going to work. There's a bit of fudging that goes on because people can't, right? There's no... Um, clear directive or incentive not to skirt around the edges of the rules on this. And lots of people do it. So what happens is, if I'm selling a car for $10,000 and, uh, you know, you agree to pay that amount, uh, that, that would be, uh, what, $1,200 owed to the government for PST. But what's to say when we have our transfer papers, uh, you ask me, could, could I say that, that I bought it for $5,000? I'll still give you the $10,000, but could I say that I bought it for $5,000 and then I only have to pay $600 PST? And people do this, right? Folks selling cars feel pressured. They want the deal to go through. They're trying to be friendly. 
and folks buying cars want, want the deal. And, and people don't really think about this as tax evasion. You know, I, I don't think folks doing this sort of recognize that what they're participating in is, is in fact fraudulent, right? This is tax evasion. Well, that's pretty strong words. So what happened in the past? Uh, buyers paid the tax and agreed to a sale price. Now, the government requires taxes to be paid on the government's estimated value of the vehicle, closing what NDP MLA Brenda Bailey says is a loophole. This is simply a question of closing uh, some behavior, closing a loophole on behavior that we want to curb because it's, frankly, it's tax evasion. So to, to suggest that this is a new tax is quite a stretch. Um, you know, and I wonder if the other side is suggesting that tax evasion is something that they support. That would surprise me greatly. Um, perhaps they just misunderstand what it is. I, certainly not that we think everyone's a criminal. That's a ridiculous thing to state. So it's going to be a whole lot more complicated just to sell your car. So the reason for the government saying that some people were cheating the taxman by reporting a fake lower sales pr price in order to pay less tax. What's all wrong with that? Well, Mike Smith had a chance to talk with Peter Millibar, BC's Liberal Finance critic, about that. Well, let's be clear. Uh, the majority of, of sales, uh, private sales, uh, that that change to legislation that captures are under $20,000. People, generally speaking, buying uh, more expensive used cars are doing it on a car lot and and that's already been taken care of. Uh, the problem is that the government's view of the world is that everyone is a tax cheat. Uh, the reality is uh, people are finding good deals. Uh, we're, we're hearing cases uh, repeatedly uh, as this change has happened. And, and the most egregious part of all of this is ICBC, if you get an accident, they use one software system to basically undervalue your vehicle in a payout for, uh, for writing off the vehicle. And when you go in to register the vehicle that you purchased, uh, they use a different system that actually ups the value of the vehicle so they can collect maximum amount of taxation off of you. So they're, they're smacking the users over the head both sides. And, and really, our proposal is that instead of calling people tax cheats, how about in a time of record unaffordability and high inflation, we actually give them a tax break instead? Right. But let's not kid ourselves. I mean, there are people who cheat the system, right? There are people who will put in a fake receipt or they'll under-report what they actually paid for a vehicle, so they pay less sales tax. I mean, let's not be naive about it. We know that happens, right? Well, absolutely it happens, and it happens yeah. in every level of taxation out there. It happens with, with people in, in terms of the black market and construction or all sorts of things, and that's why governments bring in a check and a balance on, on all sorts of tax measures. But under the old system, there already was that check and balance. The, the government already had the ability to take that uh, piece of paperwork, that registration you took to ICBC, follow it up and investigate with both the purchaser and the seller to confirm what the values on that were, if they flagged it as a, as a suspicious amount. Uh, they didn't have to call every single person a tax cheat. They actually just had to do enforcement uh, under existing laws that they already had. Yeah. Is there a, a scenario here where people could get really badly burned on something like this like if you if you are lucky enough or fortunate enough to get a good deal on a car maybe you're a shrewd negotiator or you have a, a motivated seller who needs the car to sell quickly or maybe it's a you got a deal from a friend or family member are you then in jeopardy of paying more sales tax than you otherwise should have 
Well, you absolutely are. And, and the problem is that we just had one uh, case come across my desk the other day where the person, a young first-time driver, paid $1,000 for a vehicle. Um, the government is saying, no, that vehicle really should be worth uh, 2500 I believe it was off the top of my head here. Uh, it was in that range. Uh, the black book, uh, the one that they would use if it was in an accident, was saying that car is actually worth $450. Uh, but they want oh. the person to pay tax based on their other calculation on that $2,000 plus. Now, the difference there doesn't sound like a huge amount of extra tax, but if you're a young person or if you're someone really struggling to get by, that extra $120 in tax uh, is a significant cost pressure. And so this is really about trying to uh, make sure that people are simply trying to buy an affordable, uh, safe, used vehicle at a very low cost that, remember, by the time it's worth that value, has likely been sold two or three times, already had PST paid on it two or three different times, um, and saying, you know what, we've probably collected enough tax off this vehicle for, for its lifetime. Uh, perhaps the, the public should be afforded a bit of a tax break. Okay, before I ask you about your bill on the tax break, just, just one more question on the current system we have here. Let, let's say, you know, someone gets burned in the scenario you just described. They're charged more tax than they, they actually should have paid because they got a good deal on the vehicle. You can appeal it, right? You can go to, do you appeal it through ICBC? Is that what you do? You can fight it. Well, you can appeal it, uh, yeah. but the, the the irony in all this is the way you appeal not having to pay $120 is to go try to find somebody for $250 to appraise the vehicle um, yeah. and to then take it to ICBC and justify why the vehicle is worth what you're actually paying for it in the first place. Again, it's the default um, uh, position of this government repeatedly that everybody is a criminal. Uh, we're saying they're not. Uh, we're saying that there's already existing ways um, uh, to to do audits, to follow up on suspicious transactions. Uh, but uh, at the core, uh, why I brought the bill forward again is we're also saying, you know what, maybe people just deserve to have a little bit of a break if they're they're you know in the economic conditions that they are, that they need to buy as cheap a vehicle as possible and not pay any tax on that uh, in the first place. Okay, speaking to Kamloops, North Thompson, Liberal MLA, Peter Millibar, about tax on used cars. Okay, let's talk about your private member's bill here. So this would be what zero tax on a used vehicle sale. Well, so last year, the government brought in a, a zero tax on, on used electric vehicles, um, up to $20,000 and, oh. and with 6,000 kilometers on them. What my bill does is says, regardless of whether it's a, an internal combustion engine or an electric vehicle, uh, if it's $20,000 or less, if it has more than 6,000 kilometers on it, it's considered a used vehicle and it's exempt uh, from paying uh, PST. Uh, so really, it's just trying to level the playing field um, for people that, that can't afford uh, or don't want to try to have an electric vehicle right now, let alone a used one. Uh, if they don't have the charging capability at their house and, and are able to pay for that quick charger, um, you know, it might not work in their situation. So really, it's just trying to treat uh, everybody the same based on language the government has already brought in uh, for use electric vehicles. Well, well, what about climate change, though? I mean, that's a climate change initiative, isn't it? They want to give people a break on an electric vehicle to save the planet. Well, it's a climate change initiative, but uh, first off, uh, you know, there's not a ton of these vehicles out there that are $20,000 or less that are electric these days. Uh, secondly, again, if, if we're talking about tax cheats, um, so what the, what the government's basically saying is, well, we don't want to worry about um, the value of an electric vehicle if it's under $20,000. 
Uh, we're not going to call you a tax street if you drive an electric vehicle, but we're going to call you a tax street if you drive a, a gas vehicle and got a good deal on it. Um, so again, it's really just trying to treat people uh, with a little bit of fairness here, especially in the backdrop of what we're seeing happen in the economy. Uh, let's remember in that same budget where they brought forward the electric vehicle rebate uh, or removal of taxation, uh, their own uh, um, you know, handlers were telling them uh, that the, the tax changes to use vehicles were going to directly impact rural areas, lower income people, uh, because that's where the bulk of the private sales are happening that are uh, of a lower value. In my riding, once you leave Kamloops, in my riding for the next three hours, there's not a used car lot anywhere. Everything is a private sale, and, and the vast majority are 20000 or less. Okay, so if, if we did what you would like to see government do, eliminate that PST on used car sales under 20000 if it's got at least 6,000 kilometers on it, you know, someone's got to pay the piper, right? Like you're giving up government revenue. So how much would this cost the government in terms of foregone revenue that they would otherwise collect? Yeah, uh, by our calculations, we had it pegged in the, in the $20 million range uh, that it would cost for the year. So again, we're, we're talking about predominantly lower value uh, uh, sales. Uh, yes, the cap is $20,000, but the vast majority, um, you know, with vehicles is uh, when you hit that 20000 it tends to drop real fast and, and starts to get down in that uh, four or $5,000 range of, of, a, of a sale. So, um, again, the government's view is that you're a tax cheat. If you find a, a $5,000 used car that you only pay $3,000 for because you got a good deal, um, somehow you're a tax cheat because you, you only want to pay tax on the $3,000 you actually pay for the, the car. We're saying let's let's get rid of that completely and, and just have the person not have to pay that $360 on that, that $3,000 good deal that they found. And that would be a good use of the public's money effectively in your mind. Like, okay, this would cost $20 million in foregone government revenue, but you're helping out people on the, you know, conceivably on the lower end of the income spectrum in a tough economy. Is that the way you would frame it? Well, well, well absolutely. Let's be clear. The Auditor General said last year that uh, the NDP, since they've come into office, are now collecting $12 billion, that's with a B, dollars more in taxation every single year uh, now from all of us as taxpayers. We're simply saying that perhaps instead of adding and actually trying to collect even more tax off of you, especially when it relates to used cars, Perhaps we can take a very small rounding error off of that $12 billion of extra taxation and, and allow people to actually not be treated like a criminal in a tax cheat and actually get uh, you know $20 million worth of savings spread out across this whole province. Oh, yes, and uh, Pokemon fans uh, will know that. The theme song... Yeah, the Pokemon theme song. And we're lucky on a Friday afternoon, Friday morning going into the afternoon, Friday morning still, to have the voice of Pokemon's Ash Ketchum, who is coming to Vancouver for Fan Expo on February the 18th, right through the 20th. Sarah Natachini, uh, thanks so much uh, for being with us, uh, and welcome ahead of time to Vancouver. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to be there. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful city. You'll have a great time. Tell me about the mm -hmm. the magic of Pokemon and uh, how you got involved in being a voice for this. Sure. Well, the magic of Pokemon, I mean, it's been around for 25 years, and it's it's 
the it's it's everyone's childhood. Literally everywhere I go, I find a Pokemon fan at the doctor's office, at the pharmacy, at at, at all the stores. Um, I'm so incredibly lucky to be a part of this. Uh, I booked the job when I was 18 years old, and I've been doing it for 17 years now. And um, it was just a regular audition like anything else, and I happened to book it. I'd gone to acting school, and, you know, I was ready for the luck. Well, and a few months ago, the the anime anime and Pokeverse uh, world was in disbelief with uh, some big changes in the main characters, weren't they? Mm -hmm, Very much so. I was surprised, too. Uh, And, you know, since that time, what has uh, the reaction been? Uh, Do you uh, do you have a lot of input from fans? Oh, an enormous amount. Uh, we found out, uh, well, the world found out on a Friday, and just all of Twitter, all of Instagram was just talking about it, and I got an outpouring of love like I've never experienced before. It was the most beautiful thing. So, yeah, and it came from all over the world. I was in newspapers in India. Like, it, it, was, it was incredible. Yeah, taking over uh, the voice for this is uh, is a huge move and uh, one that uh, mm-hmm. has, uh, of course, set you up for the future, but also for now, of course. Uh, what is yeah. the most valuable acting lesson you learned from from the Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute? Oh, interesting. Um, well, that you can become a character without letting it take over your life. I've been doing Ash Ketchum for 17 years. And while I have learned a lot from Ash, namely being a protagonist in my own life, being adventurous, being positive, that's all stuff that I learned on, in, during my journey of playing Ash Ketchum. That's not something that I came in with. So um, I think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned, that you can be inspired by your characters, but not fully embody and become them forever. <laughs> And, and, you know, because Ash is uh, an interesting character, if uh, you follow the game and uh, and follow uh, certainly the episodes, um, you know, he he's independent, he's an adventurer, and uh, he fights evil, but not in the way that uh, you would find in most animation, right? Right. Yeah, he's very, very positive, and he never, he never intentionally hurts anybody along his way to becoming a Pokemon master. The thing that I've always liked, and my son plays uh, Pokemon, uh, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm with him when he does it. Uh, but you even have like buddy systems uh, set up, so it's uh, it's kind of inclusive. Yeah, extremely so. Yeah, it's wonderful. Now, how does improv training serve you in acting through some of these parts? Because it, it must still be a bit of a challenge. Oh, 100 um, percent. In animation, improv is actually very important, especially in comedy animation. They're always looking for somebody who can add to the script and really fill out the character, fill out the role uh, without taking over too much. So that's kind of the line that we're always skirting. Um, but it, I, I don't think I would be where I am today without my improv training. Does very every important. person, is there part of you, is there part of Sarah that comes into the uh, into Ash, or is it all Ash? Like, do you stay true to the character as you understand it? Like, I'm just trying to figure out how that works. Sure. Uh, so when I booked the role, I was actually very surprised because I was not very adventurous and I wasn't very positive. And I'm like, well, you don't really book a role unless there's something in you that is that role. Um So I spent a few years trying to find that in myself and through a lot of, you know, therapy and acting exercises and things like that, I, I found that there is a lot of ash in me. And so 
on the reverse end of it, there is a lot of myself in Ash. I think as a character, if you really study it really, really hard, my, my 17 years of this, you can see how I in- injected myself, not, not intentionally, it just kind of naturally happened, into this character over the years. And now, I mean, people just, people hear me. They hear Ash when they hear me. You inject it into the character. Does the character also inject it into you the other way around? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm so, if you follow my Instagram and Twitter and all this, you will see that I am nonstop traveling and making new friends and fighting evil, of course, everywhere I go. And I'm actually, I, I rescued a cat in Mexico just now. Uh, with a bunch of kittens, I, I liaised and helped make that happen. So, yeah, that is a lot exactly of what me. Ash would do, of course. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. <laughs> um, we're talking with Sarah uh, Natachini, the voice of Pokemon's Ash Ketchum, and she's going to be coming to Vancouver Fan Expo February 18th, right through the 20th. You know, when you're not behind the mic, you're working with your mm-hmm. charity, Voices for Fosters. Tell me about that. Sure. So, uh, well, before the pandemic, fostering was so unknown. Um, I have been a cat lover and owner my entire life. And when my cat was passing away, I learned about fostering and it was crazy to me that I'd never heard of it before. So I started this organization with my director, Lisa Ortiz, who also lost her cat at that time. And we just started promoting fostering. It's very simple. Um, And now I raise money and give it over to other 501, sorry, I'm not a 501c3, other 501c3s that uh, rescue cats like boots on the ground, people who are rescuing, you know, not not the huge organizations that everybody donates to, but the ones that I know personally who are doing this work. Sarah Natachini, that is wonderful to hear and something for fans to talk to you about when they come to Vancouver Fan Expo. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.